Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5. If you are using a pew Bible, you will find that on page 1147. The weapons we fight are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they are a divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That is the reading of, the, of God's word. You may be seated. Now, we are offering Kingdom Kids today. Um, that is a ministry for our kiddos that are four years through second grade, and they have the opportunity to worship at their level during this time. So kids, if you will, meet Miss Lori right over here. And parents, after service, you can pick your child up over on the second floor of our CLC building, which is the two-story building right over here. And now, if you will, help me welcome Eric Hernandez. It's good to be with you this morning. I appreciate the reciprocation. Thank you. I'm already feeling the love. Um, my name is Eric Hernandez. I'm the apologetics lead for the Baptist Journal Convention of Texas. And um, for the sake of time, I want to uh, jump right in uh, our subject today. It's quite fitting that, as we all know, today is a day of commemoration of the terrorist attacks on 9-11. Does anyone know who this gentleman is? Richard Dawkins. He is uh, one of the world's most renowned atheists. Uh, wrote a book called The God Delusion, and they, uh, he's part of a group that called themselves the New Atheist. And the, the New Atheist really sprang in, uh, particularly around and after the time of 9-11, because of the things that were, were happening, especially with, with uh, these kind of atrocities. Guys like Richard Dawkins gathered together with some other atheists, and one of the books that came out of this was known as The God Delusion. Now, when I begin my uh, sermons, I like to typically start with a verse from the Bible, but if you don't mind, uh, humoring me, let's start with a verse from an atheist Bible, if you will. I use that tongue-in-cheek. Here's what he says in this book. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. He is jealous and proud of it. He is a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capricious, malevolent bully. What do you think? Now, if you don't understand some of the words that he used, suffice it to say that he just got through saying a lot of really nasty things about the God that you and I just got through worshiping. How does that make you feel? But then my next question is, how would you respond to such an accusation? Now, while we don't have time to go into the accusations that Dawkins gives in his book, a great book I'd recommend is by Paul Copen, Is God a Moral Monster, where he addresses a lot of the claims Dawkins is making in this quote. But for our purposes here, I'm reminded of something that Christ said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. He said that you are the salt of the earth... But if the salt loses its purpose, its function, it is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and walked on when the walkways are wet and slippery. Now, 
Because of the wide technological gap between the time this was written and now, I find that oftentimes we miss the principle of what Christ is getting at with this illustration. So, to understand the context, it's first important to understand that in ancient times, see, they didn't have refrigerators to store meat like we do today. So, in these biblical ancient times, the way they would preserve the uh, meat and prolong its shelf life was they would use salt, and salt act as, acted as a preservative. Are you with me so far? So, if suppose you lived in these ancient times, and you go to the local market, and you buy a bag of salt, and you come home, and you begin to add the salt to various pieces of meat. Now, given the, the cultural context, let me ask you, in this illustration that Christ has given us, who is the salt representing? Us, the church, you and me. And if that's the case, what would the meat represent? The world, the culture that we live in. Now, I asked you this morning, is the meat going bad? Absolutely. Turn on the news. Look at any social media outlet. Clearly, the meat is going bad. But with this in mind, here's the point that Christ is getting at. Again, you live in these ancient times, you buy a bag of salt, you begin to add the salt to various pieces of meat, but then you begin to notice that no matter how much salt you add, no matter what type of meat it is, you notice that it continues to spoil and perish just as it normally would, as if there were no salt to begin with. And if this is the case, here's the point that Christ is making. If this continues to happen, then at some point we have to step back and stop asking what's wrong with the meat. And at some point we have to step back objectively and ask ourselves, what is wrong with the salt? Part of what I do with Texas Baptist is what's called apologetics. And this is one way in which we can be the salt to the earth. And through your giving through the Mary Hill Davis offering, we are able to equip and empower people to not just understand the strongholds, which we'll get to later in our culture, but how to address and identify them and respond to them. Because if the church does not learn and know how to be the salt of the earth, the meat will continue to perish. And given this illustration, hear me here with, with, with love, what Christ is saying is that if the meat goes bad, he does not look at the meat, he points and looks at the salt. Hence, you, me, we are the salt of the earth. When people ask me what is apologetics, I like to begin by asking two questions. And I say, let me ask you two questions and allow me to respond as a skeptic. And here are the two questions. First question is, why are you a Christian? But the second is, why should someone else be a Christian? And it is intended to be these two for a specific reason because oftentimes... A person's answer to the first question does not necessarily apply to the second. Let me briefly explain that. I, um, by way of example, I was invited some years ago to speak at a men's conference. And before the service, I was backstage with some of the other speakers. And the keynote speaker, who was a pastor, he, he approaches me in, in kind of a patronizing, condescending tone. And he says, so I hear you do apologetics. I said, yes. And then he said, but, but you know what they say, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. I said, what do you mean? He says, well, I have my testimony, which is the typical answer I get to the first question. He said, I have my testimony, my experience, and no one can argue against that. Because see, I was addicted to drugs, I was violent, I was in gangs, I was going through a divorce, I was an alcoholic, but the one true God saved my life. And because of my experience... 
I don't need apologetics to defend my faith because no one can argue against my testimony. I said, okay. I said, well, let me ask you a question. Do you ever do any evangelism? He said, oh, yeah. I said, what do you do? He said, well, once a month we go to these apartment complexes and we set up the station and we cook hot dogs and hamburgers for the people. We interact with the community. We play basketball with the kids. And then I stand up and I share my testimony that no one can argue against. So I don't need apologetics for any of it. I said, okay. I said, well, as a hypothetical, I'm curious to your thoughts on this. So suppose you go for lunch. Let's say five hours later, a different religious group comes. And let's say they're Muslim, right? And they come to the same apartment complex in the same area you were just at. And they set up a station. And they cook hot dogs and hamburgers for the people. They interact with the community. They play basketball with the kids. But let's suppose for the sake of argument that this Muslim's testimony is, I don't know, 10 times better than your testimony, right? Let's say he was um, in 10 different gangs, addicted to 10 different types of drugs, had 10 bottles of alcohol at his house, was going through 10 different divorces at once, because, you know, in Islam you can have more than one wife, right? Uh, and and was, was prone to 10 different types of violence. But then he stands up and he leans into the mic and says, but the one true God, Allah, saved my life. Now, based on what you told me earlier, you said that a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. So based on this Muslim's experience and testimony, which, again, is ten times better than yours, would you then drop to your knees with tears of joy and repentance and devote your life to Allah and become a Muslim? He said, no, of course not. I said, right. That's kind of my point. Now, don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that personal testimonies have no place. That's a much deeper, another discussion and sermon itself. But let's look at what Scripture says. The Bible says that the preaching of the cross is power to those who believe, that is you and I, but it is foolishness to those who don't. So our job as believers is how do we take what the world deems as foolishness and translate that to demonstrate its power? I submit to you that is in part the discipline and task of apologetics. If I can add one more point to this. So, so if a personal testimony won't suffice, at least not for the second question, what would be the appropriate answer? Well, here, here's my response. I have one answer for both questions, and it's really deep and profound. You might want to write this down. If someone says, Eric, why are you a Christian? And why should I or someone else be a Christian? My answer is simple. One answer. Because it's true. What a new idea, right? In other words, let me put it this way. Suppose you said, Eric, why do you believe that water is H2O? And I said, oh, let me tell you why. Because, see, ever since I started to believe that water is H2O, I've become a much better husband to my wife and a much better father to my children. And in fact, once a week I gather together with my friends and we meet in this building that's dedicated to the belief that water is H2O. We sing these beautiful songs and I just lift my arms and tears roll down my face. And then on another day of the week, uh, we meet together and we read these books about how water is H2O. 66 books to be exact. And also not too long ago, this secular rapper came out and said he believes water is H2O, so we know it must be. Now, if that sounds ridiculous to you, let me ask you this. How different of an answer is that than when we ask your average, typical believer, why are you a Christian? 
but you are the salt of the earth. So what is apologetics? The typical go-to verse is 1 Peter 3.15, which says, To be ready to give an answer, some translations say defense, to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you. That word defense comes from the Greek word apologia, which is where we get the word defense. And hence, apologetics, simply speaking, is given a defense for what you believe. Not just what you believe, but why you believe it. And note, this is a New Testament mandate to every New Testament believer, which means if you are a Christian sitting here this morning, you are commanded by God to be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you because you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its purpose, its function, it is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and walked on by people. I ask you this this morning. Is the church being walked on? Absolutely. But you are the salt of the earth. If you're taking notes, the verse we read this morning, 2 Corinthians 10, 4, and 5, and this is where I want to park a little bit as as the foundation for our message this morning. Because I want to talk about the spiritual warfare and dominant strongholds of our culture. And in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, it says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty for the overthrow, destruction, and pulling down of strongholds. Well, what is a stronghold? Growing up, I was told that strongholds were things like demon possession or alcoholism. And while it may encompass that, we can actually allow the Bible to define this in the very next verse. And it says, inasmuch as we destroy and refute, tear down arguments, reasonings, and every high and proud thing that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Which means, biblically speaking, a stronghold can be defined as thoughts, ideas, reasonings, philosophies, arguments, and presuppositions that go against the knowledge of God. Any view or set of beliefs that hinder or keep people from coming to the knowledge of God, the Bible defines as a stronghold. And this is quite literally the spiritual warfare within our culture. Which means, biblically speaking, if you want to be effective in evangelism, if you want to be effective in spiritual warfare, if you want to be effective in discipleship, if you want to be effective in being the salt of the earth, then you cannot do it without apologetics, biblically speaking. I didn't write the book, I just read it, and if you take issue with that, you can take it up with the author. Now, as a disclaimer... uh, I talk fast, and I have ADHD, and I'm Hispanic. So that does, usually doesn't make for a good mix. Thank you for laughing at my mental disorder. Uh, so at, at the end of this, I'll give you a, a slide where you can download all the... A, a link where you can download all the slides and notes for free this morning if you'd like. So a person cannot come to knowledge of God or deeper knowledge of God with such strongholds. Now, at this point, I typically get people saying, but Eric, isn't it all about faith? I I don't have time to walk through the biblical definition of faith and show how this word has been misapplied and and abused by both Christians and non-Christians alike. But let's look at what Jesus said. The Pharisees approach Jesus and they come to him in Mark chapter 12, 30. And and they, they approach him and they say, out of all the commandments in the Old Testament, which is the greatest? Now, if you're in the men's group this morning, you can't answer this question, but... Here's a question. How many commandments are in the Old Testament? 
Some people usually shout out 10, and I say close enough, 613, but 10, that's not too far off. So Jesus is saying out of all 613 commandments, this is the greatest, to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and principal commandment. Now let's break these down briefly. The heart would have been indicative of someone's emotions towards God. And if I can be honest, I think we do a fair job as a modern-day 21st century American church. I think we do a fair job of loving God with our emotions. We lift our hands. We cry at the altar. And this is beautiful. Continue to do this. This is in part fulfilling the greatest commandment. And then there's loving God with our strength, which would be indicative of our service towards God. And I've experienced this beautifully here at this church already. With, with uh, Pat and Ron uh, allowing me to stay with them and, and, and the service of the volunteers asking me if I need help, you need water. And this is fantastic. You know, we, we bring the casseroles to the Baptist potlucks. We, we help out with youth and we love God with our strength. And that is fantastic. Continue to do that. But then there's loving God with the mind. Which in the Greek is a word that emphasizes your intellect, your rationality, your faculty of understanding. And if I can say with a heavy heart, this is where the modern day church has truly dropped the ball. To put this in perspective, it hasn't always been this way. If you were to go back in time with me to 325 AD, we would see the church fathers gathered around at the Council of Nicaea. And if you know anything about church history... What began to happen was, uh, uh, you have to understand that Christianity was still a relatively new religion at this time. And heresies began to arise about the doctrine of the Trinity and the incarnation of Christ. So the church fathers, equipped with apologetics and philosophy and theology, wanted to address these concerns and address these heresies. And they began to gather together to hammer out, how can we adequately articulate what we believe to a world that doesn't believe us? Because, see, around this time, their greatest concern, the greatest concern of the church, of the early church, was, is what we believe true? Is it biblical? Is it logically consistent? Is it philosophically coherent? And because of this concern, in loving God with the mind, they begin to ask questions like the following. How can we explain the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, we can explain that there is one divine substance in three persons. There is one what, but three who's. Well, what is a divine substance? What are the metaphysical attributes of the necessity of a divine substance? On top of that, what about Christ? Well, well, we know that Christ had a divine nature, but he also had a human nature. So what we can say is that Christ had a dual nature. He was a, had a divine nature that took on a human nature. Well, what does it mean to be a nature? What is a person? What is a persona? What are the metaphysical implications of what it means to be a person? Who here could answer these Daunting but foundationally important questions. Anybody here know anyone who's even asked these questions, much less answered them? Now, you also have to understand that around this time, the church had just seen some of the most bloodiest, gruesome persecutions in history. Because around this time, the church, Christians were literally running for their lives. Being persecuted legitimately, we don't know what persecution is. We think if we get a a dislike on Facebook, it's persecution. That is not persecution. They were running for their lives. They were being beheaded, boiled alive, crucified upside down, fed to lions for entertainment. 
And yet around this time, with the most bloodiest persecution the church had ever seen, their greatest concern remained. Is what we believe true? Is it biblical? Is it logically consistent? Is it philosophically coherent? Now fast forward with me 2,000 years later to the modern day 21st century American church and ask ourselves, what is our greatest concern? Are the church pews comfortable enough? Is there enough coffee in the lobby for visitors? Will they sing my favorite song during worship? Is there enough pizza for the lock-in for the youth this weekend? All fair questions, but in all sincerity, what is our greatest concern? Because we're not being fed to lions. We're not being crucified upside down. We're not being beheaded. We're not being bored alive or stoned to death. And what is our greatest concern? Because you are the salt of the earth. If you don't like me after this, I'm done. You don't have to see me again. Some years ago, I was invited to speak to a youth group. And prior to the service, the pastor invited me to have lunch with him. And as we're having lunch, he says, you know, I know you do apologetics and all, but I just don't think it has a place behind the pulpit. Maybe, maybe a Bible study, maybe a small group, but definitely not a Sunday morning service. Thankfully, my sermon that night was not on apologetics, but I'm also not going to argue with the pastor of whose church I'm about to preach at. So I said, well, we can agree to disagree. As I was invited to the stage that night by the youth pastor, he, he asked me to briefly introduce myself. So, so I briefly mentioned my role as an apologist and said, but if you have questions, I told the students, you can ask me after the service. As the service concluded, I walked to my seat, and as I'm gathering my things out of the corner of my eye, I see this young man and his mother, and they are just marching straight towards me, and they stop right in front of me, and the young man looks at me and says, Tell her you said we could ask you questions, right? And I thought, my goodness, did I say something wrong during my message? Did did I say something offensive? And I said, yes, is everything okay? And his mom looked at him, looked at me and said, As long as you're okay with it, I'll let y'all talk. And she walked off. And what he said next ripped my heart. I asked him, I said, is everything okay? He said, yes, but, but I'm an atheist. I don't want to come to church, but my mind forces me to, so I come. But I've always had questions. And as I began to ask these questions to those in my youth group, and they couldn't answer them, they sent me to the youth pastor. And when he couldn't answer them, they sent me to the pastor. And it's gotten to the point to where they made this rule. They sat me down and said, if you're going to come to the church, sit down, shut up, and stop bothering people with your questions. But then he looked at me and said, but you don't come here. So the rule doesn't apply to you, and you said we could ask you questions. So if you don't mind, could I ask you some questions? We talked for at least an hour. So much so that the person with the keys to the church said that we had to leave. And as I'm walking to my car, we're still talking, he's still asking questions. Bright young man. And I said, look... I wish we had more time, but if you'd like, I'm going to see the pastor tomorrow for breakfast. 
And, and I can tell him that, that if, if you want to continue the conversation, I can give him my information and we can continue talking over the phone or through email. And he said, that would be so great. Over breakfast the next morning, I wasted no time and I, I asked the pastor, I said, you know you have an atheist in your youth group, right? And he looked down at his plate and he laughed nervously and said, yeah, that, that's so-and-so, we're praying for him. And I said, you realize it's going to take more than that. Look, out of respect for you, I said, here's my business card with my personal cell and my email. And I told him, if he wanted to continue the conversation, we can continue talking. If you don't mind, would you give it to him? That was almost... That was almost ten years ago. And I doubt he ever got it because I never heard from him. But you are the salt of the earth. Through your giving, through the Mary Hill Davis offering, we are able to reach people like this and be the salt. Perhaps you're not equipped in apologetics. That's a whole other discussion, but I like what, what Pat said. You can either give, you can go, or you can gather and pray for those that do. With this in mind, there are three dominant strongholds in our culture. And I, I want to, with the time we have left, I want to briefly run through three examples of what they are. And then if there's time, provide some short responses. Time is running fast, so let's briefly go through these. The first one is known as relativism or postmodernism. It is a view that truth is relative. There is no right or wrong. There is no absolute truth. So for an example, if, I, if there's a dog, suppose there's a dog here. I could say there is a dog to the right of the podium, but the person in the front row may say, no, 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 there's a dog to the left of the podium. Who's right and who's wrong? Well, we're both right. And in the same way, says a postmodernist, it doesn't matter what religion you, you choose or what God you worship, truth is relative to your perspective and there is no absolute right or wrong. So in the same way, If you're against same-sex marriage, that's fine. But don't tell someone else they can't marry who they love because that's your truth, not theirs. And if you're against abortion, that's fine. But don't tell this young lady who got raped that she can't have an abortion because she feels that's what's best for her life. And who are you to impose your religious morality onto someone else? Truth is relative. Stronghold. The second is known as scientism. Note the ism. It is a, 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 the view that the only way to gain knowledge about reality is through science. So a person holding to the stronghold may say, if it cannot be proven scientifically, then either it cannot be known or it cannot be true. It's a stronghold. And finally, we have naturalism, which is a view that the physical world is all that exists, nothing more, nothing less. And this one hits home for me. Freshman year of college... I took my first class in philosophy from an atheist professor who people warned me not to take his class because I might lose my faith. And I said, where can I sign up? Because I had questions and I knew that if Christianity was true, I needed to know why. But I also understood if Christianity is false, I'd still need to know why. And perhaps this is a guy for the job. And here is a pivotal moment and day in my life and ministry. He walks in and he pretends to hold up this antidepressant pill. 
And he says, now, religion wants us to believe in this immaterial soul. And because of this, we can have hope in an afterlife and seeing our family and friends that have gone before us. But here's the problem. According to Christianity, your emotions and moods and sensations and behaviors are all supposed to be within this alleged immaterial soul. And these are also supposed to be immaterial. But the problem is, is that if I took this tiny pill, which is physical, it has the power to change and affect the alleged immaterial states and sensations and moods and and, and emotions of my soul. But how can this be? How can something tiny and physical affect the immaterial? Because every time we look at the brain, all we see are neurons firing. And every time a scientist looks at the body under a microscope, all they find are the base elements of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, but no scientist has ever found anything like a soul. How do we explain this, he asked. He said the answer is simple, I'll tell you how. The answer is this. The answer is that there is no soul, there is no heaven, there is no hell, there is no God, there is no afterlife. You are just a physical brain and body, a meat machine, and we need to learn to live with this fact, get on with our lives, and stop believing in these foolish fairy tales. Class dismissed. Stronghold. As a freshman in college, not only had I never met anyone that didn't believe in the soul, I had never heard an argument given against it. But something even more troubling crossed my mind. Because, see, the issue of the soul is no small matter within Christianity. And I'll summarize it in this way. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, If there is no resurrection of the dead, Christianity is false and our faith is in vain. But by the same token, if there is no soul... Well, there can be no resurrection. And once again, if there is no resurrection, Christianity is false. How would you respond to that? Well, we're out of time. If you want the answer, you can get my DVD back there, A Case for the Soul, for just $20. Um, Oh, tough crowd. Let me write that down. Did not go over well. Uh, But in all sincerity, uh, we will go through some responses. I did bring some material with me. Uh, One of the first things I want to mention is that we have a conference coming up actually this Saturday. Does anyone know who Lee Strobel is? Uh, Case for Christ. Uh, We'll have him and a few great keynote speakers uh, speaking in Corpus uh, this Saturday. And and I want to do something special for you guys. Don't tell any other church I'm doing this. Uh, Because we're kicking off the Mary Hill Davis offering, if you are giving towards that or plan on giving towards that, I want you to be my guest. And, and if you don't mind writing this down or, or making a mental note, write down the code UEC315. UEC315. If you are giving to the Mary Hill Davis offering or plan on doing so, I want you to witness firsthand where this money goes to. And if you use that code, you can come for free as my guest. And I want you to see what we do with this. I want you to see the impact that we have in the culture and equipping young people and, and everyone within the church how to address these strongholds in the culture. UEC 315. Going back to the material, uh, we have a case for the soul where I spent a whole hour on this. Um, this is $20. Another DVD is Spiritual Warfare, which is what we're talking about. I spend much more time in here. This is 15. We're going to briefly touch on evidence of God. Um, the most expensive thing we have uh, is, a, is a crash course on apologetics. It's about 10 hours plus of material on, uh, excuse me, 20 hours plus on apologetic material with uh, 200 plus pages of notes. If, because people ask me, there's a lot more, there's debates, but for what I just mentioned, if you make a donation of around $100, you can take everything I have on the table. That's 20, 
plus something hours of material. I have some debates, debates I did on abortion, a three-hour debate I did on an atheist radio show, uh, and a few other talks. And that college professor I mentioned, has anyone seen the movie God's Not Dead? Yeah, I can't stand that movie. It's a horrible movie. Don't watch that movie. But um, it, in the same principle, that professor I mentioned, he was actually my first, first public debate on the existence of God. Five years after I graduated from his class, he was my first public debate. If you get the package, I will give you the download card for free if you'd like. Um, we also have download cards if you're more tech savvy where you can download the material to your phone. And, and for transparency, because we, we take card, cash, or check, but I just want you to know, Anything that you buy this morning, all proceeds will go 100% to feed a hungry family. Yeah, uh, my hungry family. Uh, I have two kids who are growing quick, and they're outgrowing their clothes, and they eat everything in sight. So I will take all the help I can get. So, let's get into this. <clears throat> Postmodernism, there is no truth. And I'm, I'm going to, again, briefly run through these. I'll give you the link for the slides later. I had someone once say, Eric, you cannot say Christianity is true because there is no truth. I said, okay, well, I just, I just have one question. I said, um, is that true? Because if you're going to tell me there is no truth, and yet the statement there is no truth, you tell it to me as if you think it's true. Well, if it's true that there is no truth, then by default, your very statement there is no truth cannot be true in principle. It's what we call in philosophy, self-defeating. Now, that, that, that is funny when you get the answer, but without raising your hand, who here could have provided an answer prior to my response? Because you are the salt of the earth. We're going to skip this for the sake of time. It's funny stuff, though. Science is the only way to gain knowledge about reality. Suffice it to say, this is false. And again, lots I can say. I go much deeper in the DVD, but let me give you one point to take home. I often have atheists ask me, Eric, give me scientific evidence for God. And my response is typically, and why would I want to do a silly thing like that? And because this is often meant with a look of confusion, I have to explain it this way. See, God, if he exists, is by definition a non-physical entity. Whereas science, though a wonderful tool for studying the physical world, it is a discipline that is limited to only studying the physical world. And if that's the case, then you cannot demand that a discipline like science, which is limited to the physical, be used to try and investigate the non-physical, is what we call in philosophy a category fallacy. It's like asking, how much does the number two weigh, what color is it, and how many can you fit in your pocket? It's a category fallacy. Or let me put it this way. Suppose you go to the beach with your friend, and you separate for two hours, and two hours later he comes back, and he has this metal detector. And he says, I just made a remarkable discovery. I just discovered there was no plastic on this beach. And with the look of confusion, you, you look over his shoulder and you notice the beach is littered with plastic. And he says, not only do I believe there is no plastic on this beach, I have come to the conclusion plastic does not even exist. And you think, why would you say that? And his answer, of course, is that because I just spent two hours combing this beach with this metal detector and it found a lot of metal, but not once did, did it ever detect an ounce of plastic. And you look at him, of course, and say, well, right, of course you didn't find plastic because it is a metal detector, not a plastic detector. In the same way, if science is a tool that is limited to the physical, you cannot ask 
give me scientific evidence for God because that would be like looking for plastic with a metal detector. It is a wrong tool for the assessment. Now, what about naturalism? With the time we have left, let me briefly run through this. I, I briefly want to get into evidence of God, but let me touch on the soul really quick. Because quite frankly, these strongholds have infiltrated our church and we have not even realized it. Each one of these have. I don't have time to go into how each one has, but let's do this with naturalism. So, a little bit of audience participation, please. Can you point, can you please point to what part of your body thinks? Okay, I see most people doing this. Brain, is that the answer? Brain, is it your brain that thinks? Yes? Do you need a brain to think? Yeah? Okay, here's my next question. Does God have a brain? I, I didn't hear anything that time, I'm sorry. It's, this is a Baptist church, right? Not a Mormon church? Just making sure. No, God does not have a brain. Mormons believe he does. Mormons believe God is physical. But the Bible says that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Does God think? Absolutely. Psalm says his thoughts towards us are more than the grains of sand. He's crazy about you. He thinks. Huh. Hey, are you made in his image? Absolutely. Well, wait a minute. If the brain thinks, you need a brain to think. God doesn't have a brain. He thinks. Hey, do you need a brain to think? Now, if you say yes, we're going to have to do this all over again. Here's a nutshell answer. No. If I can be honest with you, this is a trick question. Because throughout the history of the church, they have never believed the brain thinks. You are a soul, which is a material that has a capacity of mind, which is also immaterial. But why is it a conundrum for us, in a nutshell? Because we live in a culture that has been penetrated with naturalism, and it's infiltrated our church, and we haven't realized it. Now, we know through neuroscience that when you have thoughts, there is a correlating group of neurons firing in your brain. And the culture says, hey, let's be neutral, and let's just say the brain thinks. And the church, not having the eyes to identify or see the stronghold, says, sure, let's be neutral, the brain thinks. That's not neutrality, that's naturalism. Nevertheless, we swallow it hook, line, and sinker, and we go to a culture, we go to our jobs, and we talk about a God who, uh, excuse me, we talk about our brain, that it's the brain that thinks, and then we come Sunday morning, and we lift our hands, and we worship a God who has no brain and thinks just fine, and we never let these two beliefs come together, because quite frankly, we don't take our theology that seriously, and yet we are the salt of the earth. How would I respond to my professor's argument? Briefly, take this instrument, piano. It can play the note C. What do I need to play the note C? Specific keys. Does it follow from this that therefore these keys are the note C? No. Does it follow from this that therefore if I open the piano, I can pull the note C out? No. All that follows is that there is a correlation or cause and effect uh, relation between the keys and the note, but it doesn't follow that they're the same thing. In the same way, my brain is the instrument through which my soul uses to communicate in the physical world. And guess what? If you mess with my instrument, you mess with the way my soul communicates. So it doesn't prove they're the same thing. It just proves the relationship. But by default, to have a relationship between something, you need a cause and effect two-way relationship, which means there is a soul and a brain, but the mind is not the brain, nor is the soul the brain, though they relate and interact. Now, I end with this. I want to give you an argument for God's existence that would disprove naturalism and give a case in part for the God that we believe in. It is known as the Kalam cosmological argument. 
Don't worry about the big words. It's a mouthful, but you can share this argument in 30 seconds or less. So if, if you're in a taxi cab or an elevator, or, or if you follow someone to the bathroom and they sit down, you've got at least 30 seconds, and you can get your witness in there. And it's three sentences. Premise one, everything that begins has a cause. Premise two, the universe began, therefore the universe has a cause. And we'll end with this. Let's break this down. To understand the argument, three things came into existence when the universe began. Namely, time, space, and matter. We can put it this way. If there were no universe, there would be no time, no space, and no matter. Are you with me? Now, as we unpack this, you will actually learn about the attributes of this cause. Because in philosophy, causes proceed are greater than and are logically prior to their effects. Here's what I mean by that. The person that caused my phone to exist is not inside of my phone making it run. As the cause of my phone, he is prior to and external to and greater than my phone. In the same way, if time, space, and matter had a beginning and everything that begins needs a cause, well then guess what? The cause of time, space, and matter must be timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. Does that sound familiar to you? Which means if the universe began to exist, there must exist a timeless, spaceless, immaterial entity. Now, I've had atheists stop me and say, but wait a minute, Eric, you're trying to talk about God. And I think, really? You think so? Yeah, maybe. But he may say, but why something like God? Why not something natural? Here's a brief answer. Because if you're going to say something natural caused everything, well, everything that exists within the physical universe is natural. So you would have to say that nature existed logically prior to its existence in order to bring itself into existence, which is a logical contradiction. So if nature had a beginning, you need something beyond the natural, something transcendent to nature, something like, there's a word for that, supernatural, literally, beyond the natural. And you would need a being unimaginably powerful. Why? To create something out of nothing. And you would need a being that is personal because the universe did not have to exist. It was caused to exist Causes come from decisions, which come from wills, which comes from minds, which are grounded in persons. So, take a deep breath for dramatic effect. <clears throat> if the universe began to exist, then there must exist a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, supernatural, unimaginably powerful, personal being, and I just call him God for short. And I have the privilege of calling him my Heavenly Father. You are the salt of the earth. We have the truth. Let's just not learn how to present the gospel, but defend it. If you want to take out your phones, you can take a picture of this. Uh, you can go on my YouTube channel and see some stuff I've done. These are the notes. Uh, I'll come back to this at the end while you're doing that. Our conference, like I said, is in Corpus Christi this Saturday. Again, if you plan on, on giving to the Mary Hill Davis offering, use the discount code UEC315. Be my guest. See what we do. Um, if you go here, you can use that to sign up. I have some flyers that will be out in this area. I forget what the building's called. I'll have my material. If you want some flyers to take, you're welcome to. Or if you have any questions, uh, again, here's where the conference will be. And one last time, you can take a picture of that for the notes. Would you stand to your feet with me? I would be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to say, if you are here this morning and you don't know this God that we just talked about, if you have questions about this God that we are believing and talking about, I want to give you the opportunity to, to give your life to him and put your trust and confidence in him because we have the truth and we have the evidence to show it. 
Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that right now you would just continue to move in this place. That, Lord, we may learn to be the salt in the earth. That we may learn to be the salt in our culture and the salt in our family and our jobs and our vocations. And, Lord, if there's anyone here that does not know you, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move in their heart and they would come to know you. They would receive you in their lives. In your precious name we pray. Amen. We're going to have some deacons here up in the front. If you would like prayer or would like anything of that sort, we welcome you to come join us. And let's take some time to worship this timeless, spaceless, immaterial, supernatural, unimaginably powerful, personal being that we call our Heavenly Father. You are the salt of the earth. Amen.